You can have churches that are really good doctrinally, but for some reason you would never want to be a part of those churches because the people are so cruel toward one another and so antagonistic and hateful toward the world. We often define our churches by what they're not. So a church will mark itself as being, this is the place to go if you are courageous, if you're willing to stand for truth. Again, courage is a good thing, but again, it's, it's in isolation because we're not like all of those other wimpy churches that compromise on all their values. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Colin Hansen. Colin serves as editorial director for the Gospel Coalition. He's also the author of a number of books, including Blind Spots, Becoming a Courageous, Compassionate, and Commissioned Church with Crossway. Today, Colin and I discuss the idea of blind spots, problems with our lives, priorities, and even theology that we don't even know are there. He explains our tendency as Christians to separate ourselves into one of three camps, camps that are often highly suspicious of each other. He highlights how technology and our politically charged culture fuel division in the church, and he reflects on what it would look like to wake up to our own blind spots and to lovingly engage with those with whom we disagree. Let's get started. Colin, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. So it's almost a truism today that Christianity is, uh, well, it seems like we're living in a post-Christian society more and more. You know, we look around and um, some of the cultural assumptions and norms that used to characterize uh, our society are kind of fading away, and very, very quickly it seems like uh, oftentimes actually those old norms and beliefs and values are actually viewed as dangerous and, and dangerously out of date. Uh, and I think that can lead some Christians to feel uncertain about our, uh, conservative Christians in particular, uncertain about our place in our society going forward in the future. Uh, and I think that kind of has led to some some issues in the church. Can you resonate with those feelings of uncertainty and uh, maybe even uh, anxiety about what the Christian church is going to look like in America in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of this is age-specific. So think about people who, you know, the boomer generation or even the greatest generation before them, some of whom are, are still with us, they've seen pretty dramatic changes in their lifetimes. My grandmother often talks about her own mother who, when she died in her 90s, said to her daughter, you just won't believe what I've had to deal with in my life of of the changes that I've seen throughout most of the 20th century. And my grandmother said to her, when I get to heaven, just wait till she, what she hears from me, Mm. (laughs) what I've had to deal with. She didn't even know about the internet yeah, and things like that. I think we're living in the midst of a digital revolution with the internet, the consequences of which we have hardly begun to be able to understand because so many of us in positions of influence and responsibility in institutions are still people who were not digital natives. Uh, We still lived for maybe 10 or 15 or more uh, decades of our lives without being inundated by technology, uh, that kind of technology there. Um, And I just don't think we fully grasp how much that has changed things and how different it is for people just relating to one another uh, when they, when they they are those digital natives, when they've grown up in the world of smartphones and things like that. So 
There's a lot of ways to talk about the changes that we're undergoing. You could talk about just politics. You could talk about philosophy. Um, but then sometimes it's easy to underestimate the technological changes there, especially that we're we're in the midst of we're in the midst of them, and it'll be, you know, decades if not centuries before people look back and are able to actually explain what we lived through in these in these years of the 1990s through through today. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to, to just think about the way that these technological advances actually have this feedback influence on the doctrinal conversations that we're having and on the, the issues that we're discussing as Christians among ourselves. Um, sometimes it seems to me like the traditional doctrinal distinctions and divisions that used to separate Christians um, they still exist, but maybe they're not as prominent. They're not on the fore of the conversation that we're having, particularly when you kind of dial into maybe uh, evangelicals as a, as a broadly defined group. Um, it seems like some of those traditional doctrinal discussions, whether related to baptism or to the sacraments or the ins and outs of soteriology, are uh, sort of secondary to maybe more prominent. Maybe this just reflects online conversations, but uh, things like race and... Um, broadly social justice type of discussions, sexuality, all these these other issues that uh, the culture is very interested in more broadly. Um, have you noticed this shift in emphasis among Christians in terms of the things that we view as uh, dividing us from each other? Yeah, so there's a good book that I can plug here uh, that you guys will appreciate, uh, Finding the Right Hill to Die On. Uh, Gavin Ortland dealing with the issue of theological triage. And one of the questions that we sought to address in, in that book with Gavin Ortland um, is how some of those issues will change over time. So if we were having this conversation a century ago, we would say that the question of the millennial reign of Christ would be an absolutely vital issue that divides people who believe in the Bible and people who reject the Bible. And people who believe the Bible would, in the main, be premillennialist, and people who reject the Bible would be perhaps amillennialist or especially postmillennialist. Okay, well that sounds kind of foolish to us now. That seems pretty silly. Uh, we don't divide churches that way. We so certainly don't divide orthodoxy that way. I mean, some churches do divide that way. But fairly recently, the Evangelical Free Church decided to take out of their uh, requirements for ordination with their pastors a section on the premillennial reign of Christ. Well, it made sense when they had it in there originally because that was a shorthand way of being able to know if somebody believed the Bible. But that's just not what we use anymore. So when it comes to these issues of theological triage, what's a first-order issue inside or outside the kingdom, a second-order issue inside or outside the same churches, or a third-order issue of agree to disagree within the church, they do change over time, especially between the second and the third. Not so much the first and second, typically, but the second and the third. And so you certainly could say in the Reformation, if you want to go back further, that an issue of baptism would have been an absolute, at least a second-order issue, which it is now, but perhaps even also a first-order yeah. issue there. Um, and a first-order issue that, because of the way that Christendom operated, that if you disagreed with the church in that situation, then you would be killed for it. You'd be considered a heretic if you were a Baptist um, in the churches of, of Martin Luther and, and, to a lesser extent, uh, some of the Reformed churches of, of today's Switzerland. So, so those do change all the time. And in the last 10 years, very clearly, we have seen a shift where so, quote-unquote, social issues or political issues have risen 
to the to the forefront. But I would say pretty much for my entire career, uh, for the last 20 years or so, the issues that have been most contentious have been race and gender. And that is still the case today. And I'm not sure that's going to change anytime soon. So whether, you know, how people deal with them is is different, but those issues have remained significant. I do a top 10 theology stories of the year list at the Gospel Coalition every year, and it's pretty consistent. Issues related to Islam, uh, race, and gender are pretty much perennial dividing points. So yes, some of those have risen to the fore, and they've brought certain divisions among people who might agree on inerrancy, for example, certainly would agree on, you know, Trinitarian orthodoxy and stuff like that. But um, and generally, in this in this culture, those issues are are pretty pretty prominent. Mm. Yeah, and your your book Blind Spots, you argue that uh, you can kind of break up Christians into three groups, and that those groups kind of represent different ways of viewing the world, ver- different maybe default approaches to thinking about some of these these issues, especially related to engaging the broader culture. I wonder, can you walk us through what are those three groups, and kind of briefly summarize uh, what each of them prioritizes. Yeah, the book 2015, Blind Spots, Becoming a Courageous, Compassionate, and Commissioned Church, I think in some ways was um, a message that was not well-timed. I think if the book had come out in 2017 as opposed to 2015, people might have thought differently about it. Um, Do you think you were too early in terms of... I do. I do think so. So a lot of the book was born out of an experience that I had moving across the country. So spent most of my life in the upper Midwest in Chicago and uh, grew up in South Dakota. Then I spent some time out in New Jersey, outside of New York City. And then my wife and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama. And one of the things that I encountered moving to the South was a phenomenon that I wasn't as familiar with elsewhere, which are churches that I might agree with in almost every single doctrinal point, but that were poisonous, um, even satanic in some ways, and how they dealt with each other and how they approached the world. And it makes sense when you go back historically within the South, and it's not exclusive to the American South. It's happened elsewhere. Um, But churches that are orthodox in their beliefs, um, not even orthodox, but conservative, evangelical, reformed, you can go right down the line, but have sort of a massive blind spot in some sort of area. I mean, we still do in ways, by definition, that we don't know today. But for those churches, especially in the South, it was around race. Um, And you could broaden that out to sort of include politics in general. So I just found that, wait a minute, you can have churches that are really good doctrinally, but for some reason you would never want to be a part of those churches because the people are so cruel toward one another and so antagonistic and hateful toward the world. So that sort of unlocked a perspective to say, okay, we often define our churches by what they're not. So a church will mark itself as being, this is the place to go if you are courageous, if you're willing to stand for truth. Um, again, courage is a good thing. That's a good thing. But again, it's, it's in isolation. It's because we're not like all of those other wimpy churches that compromise on all their values. But then you see the opposite problem in a different church that says, we're the compassionate church where you come to be really nice Um, just like Jesus was so nice to people. Okay, that's fine, but without the courage part, it just makes the opposite mistake there. Then you have these quote-unquote commissioned churches, and they're all about evangelism, and 
they don't they don't care about the doctrinal issues. Let, let's just agree to disagree on those. Let's not talk about those. Let's stay united there. And let's and, but but they also don't want to be squishy. They don't want to be just compassion over there. Though they'll do some compassionate things in many cases. But again, they define themselves. We're not the doctrinal church, and we're not the compromising church. Well, the thing is, these are all positive things to be courageous, compassionate, and commissioned. They, they all, all have they all have Bible verses backing. They them. all have Bible verses. They all have an element of Jesus's ministry. Um, tying them together, but unfortunately, instead of pursuing churches that bring all of these together in the image of Christ, we create churches that define themselves against the other churches as if they're pursuing some sort of tribal market share, and they're gathering together people who have the same strengths and the same weaknesses, and i.e., they can't then see each other's blind spots. So that was the premise of the book. And uh, I just think a lot of people after the election started to talk a lot more about issues of tribalism and division within evangelicals. But um, from what I had experienced in my, in my own travels and in my own life, um, these issues had been there long before. Um, maybe the election just brought them to the fore. Yeah. You mentioned market share and um, how much of, it, of the division that we see sometimes along these lines that you laid out do you think relates to this consumeristic mentality we have with our churches? And, you know, you can kind of just pick the church that you want that fits best with your preconceived ideas or approaches to things. Is that a big factor in this? Yeah, so a lot of, a lot of different things that we could talk about there. Um, going back to what I said about technology earlier, I did a book on, on the philosophy of Charles Taylor, and Carl Truman has a chapter in that book, and he says that church discipline died with the invention of the automobile. Hmm. Well, sort of <laughs> consumer Christianity also was invented by the automobile. When you can drive wherever you want within your city or even outside of your city to be able to find the church that suits your particular feelings, your particular emotions. Just imagine the megachurch. I mean, we had a few from, hi- from history, like Charles Spurgeon's church, in a dense urban environment. But there was no such thing as this suburban megachurch. There was no such thing as the suburbs, right. really. Um, before the automobile, not at the mass scale that you see after World War II. So, I mean, absolutely, you you see this ability to be able to drive wherever you want to go. And then you also have this concept of the big sort, where our culture now is so thoroughly ideological, um, where we, we can't really bring ourselves to engage with somebody who disagrees with us about stuff. So our churches begin to sort themselves according to particular preferences then as well and not merely superficial ones about the music but this is the kind of people place where ever i know that everybody votes for donald trump or this is the kind of church that i know where no one votes for donald trump and so they divide themselves that way um and of course a million other ways there as well but yeah i mean that's a that's a a major trend and again we don't really understand how much Things like social media, the digital revolution, how much those change that by conditioning us to see people as ideas and as avatars as opposed to as whole people. Yeah. And then at the same time, the technologies that facilitate that kind of, of, of just ease of transfer between churches, major, I, major trends. And I know many people have talked about sec- technology uh, fostering these echo chambers where we can kind of cultivate our feeds to just have the people, again, disembodied people, but people that we agree with kind of speaking into us. It also facilitates, as you talk about, um, just the the caustic debate that is kind of uh, not a real person. Well, it creates, it it breeds a self-righteousness that's developed from saying, 
See, my tribe is more like an anti-tribe. That's the way David Brooks and others talk about it. It's not so much what I'm for, it's what I'm against. And so they, they develop around these lines. So you get these sort of ex-evangelical tribe, which is united not so much by what they affirm, because they don't really agree on much, but they're united on what they hate, which is this sort of patriarchal whatever you want to describe evangelical church of their upbringings. And the same thing on the conservative side of things. Again, not so much united by what they agree on, because they actually disagree on a ton of different stuff, and they'd, they'd kill each other if they were in the <laughs> same room. But as long as they have the same united enemy, then that you know, shows them that they're in the right yeah. on that. And unfortunately, that perspective afflicts the church. I'll, I'll put it this way. There are two different ways to be able to grow sort of a, of a, a church of influence. And my Blind Spots book tries to commend the one kind of way to do it. Because when you look around, you do see some churches that bring together the courage, the compassion, and the conviction. Um, I think about uh, Tim Keller's church, for example. Like You, you, you see there in, in Tim somebody who brings together the best of a courageous evangelism, a stand for truth, at the same time compassion through initiatives like Hope for New York, and commission through things like Redeemer City to City church planting on there. But a more common way that churches build themselves is by being against something. Um, so a leader who picks one of those and just defines him, himself or herself against all these other options out there. Both ways, quote-unquote, work in the world's terms to be able to build a church, but I would argue that only one of them truly honors Christ. The other one simply plays upon our particular prejudices of mm. this age. Mm. Yeah. So you are journalists by training, and um, in 2006 you wrote this article that would uh, go on to become, I think, a pretty influential, uh, pretty notable article for Christianity Today uh, called Young, Restless, and Reformed. You kind of were trying to explain the rise of the New Calvinists and this, this growing group of young, as you say, broadly Reformed evangelicals uh, who were just excited about their faith, excited about these Reformed doctrines. Um, now, looking back over a decade later from when that article was published, you wrote then a book for Crossway with the same title, um, what do you think are some of the blind spots that have been characteristic of the YRR movement? Well, uh, I think most of the YRR would fall into that courage category. Um, so they're really good on being able to stand for truth, but not necessarily on some of the other points. And that's, um, it took me a while. I even wrote the article and I wrote the book without truly understanding why this was happening. Uh, I asked people, that's what a journalist does. You go around and you ask people why this was happening. I remember one prominent pastor said to me, it's happening because it's true. Well, a lot of things happen because they're not true. Um, you know, if you looked at Joel Osteen's church and you said, it's really huge. Why is it huge? Because it's true. And that would be incorrect. So that's not really a, a sufficient way to be able to explain it. So what I found actually through the philosophy of, of Charles Taylor, was an explanation for what was happening. And to a certain extent, there's both a good and a negative with what's happened with the YRR movement. The negative side is that for many people, it's a coming-of-age narrative by which they are asserting their individual expressed identity over against whatever inherited religion or tradition of their youth. So imagine your stereotypical Southern Baptist who grows up as a perhaps a precocious, theologically-minded youth, 
in a situation that's very revivalistic, very emotionally driven, pretty thin on the theology, pretty overwhelming in its syncretism toward a religious right culture. And when he or she discovers Reformed theology, it not only empowers them in many positive ways as they understand the different aspects of the Bible really start to open for them, but it comes a, a cudgel then to then pound the church and the family of their youth to be able to say, why did you prevent me from this? Or why did you stop me from this? So it becomes this way of asserting themselves against that that youthful religion. It's like a marker of their individuality. Exactly. And that doesn't look that different from the ex-evangelical movement that we were talking about before. It's ended up in a more positive place, but it has the ba- same basic take or same basic posture. Mm. Uh, toward toward life. Well, I've found in the, that last decade since then that for a lot of the people who started out that way, sort of that cage stage reformed, they had to do one of two things. Uh, one of them is that they either went into a sort of position of institutional authority and they had to find that if you keep doing that, all you do is create endless, restless people in your church. It, it just, it, it becomes, it never, it never matures uh, there. And that that causes all kinds of problems within within a church when you're actually responsible to care for souls there. Some other people, if that's been their narrative, then they just keep spinning. So they were reformed when it wasn't popular, but then when reformed got popular, they had to find something else that was unpopular. So they just keep, you know, coming of age by yeah. declaring their individuality as they continue to go on there. So that's kind of the, the negative side of things. But like I said, the, the positive side is that, I mean, it's helped to, well, just introduce them to a big theology of God that's helped them to suffer and to be able to live with joy in a world that is very anxious. And it's, and it's, and it's been a pillar, it's been a rock of stability for them. And it's been able to then open up their blind spots and kind of expose their blind spots in a world where... We're told that what you feel is sovereign. What you, you know, and if you don't feel good, then something must be wrong with you or something must be wrong with your theology. So that blind spot, Reformed theology has definitely helped with to say, I just, I can't trust myself and I can't trust my feelings all the time and I can't trust necessarily the messages that are coming. I, I, need, to, I need to run everything through the filter of God's word and I have to, choose to believe that God's word is true, even if I don't want to, even if I don't feel like it there, but that God is honored in that, and ultimately it's for my good. So, that's a, I mean, I've learned a lot since then, and it's been really helpful, but it was funny that it's not until after the book that I really began to understand more of the why. Yeah. The, the book is the what. So my subsequent writing, especially the book on Charles Taylor, um, Our Secular Age, is more of the why. Yeah. And the interesting thing about blind spots, the tricky thing about them is it seems like, and maybe the YRR is an example of this, in when we discover there's a blind spot that we've been living with for a long time, it's so easy to overreact and go in the other direction, and sometimes then we develop quickly uh, the kind of the opposite blind spot that we had before. Yeah, think of it that way. So most of the people that I meet in the YRR movement have either come out of the compassion side or the commission side. So... I would be an example of somebody who came out of the compassion side of things within the United Methodist Church. So you'll see a lot of people who are refugees from mainline Protestant liberalism, where the only thing you heard about was Jesus meek and mild. 
in those cases. So um, that was a that was a problem. Uh, and Reformed theology help was a strong correction to that. Now, hopefully, we haven't lost the compassionate side. But again, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes yeah. you can swing to the opposite. Right. But I think more people have come out of the commissioned side. They either grew up in the, your kind of quintessential Southern Baptist megachurch or your sort of Willow Creek-style northern uh, seeker church there where they were looking for more theological substance than what they were getting in that quote-unquote commissioned church. So again, hopefully they, and I think that's been more true, they've still brought a lot of evangelistic and missions zeal as they come in uh, into that camp. But yeah, that's exactly right. Like they've, it's often been switches from those two. I, there are fewer people, though some notable examples, who have come from, say, fundamentalism with the overemphasis on courage to the exclusion of others who have then drifted into Reformed theology. But a lot of it is switches from those other two categories. Why do you think that is? Why are fewer from the more fundamentalist side of things? Well, in part because those churches already did really emphasize doctrine. Uh, so the the main attraction of simply a church that takes the Bible seriously was not so much the case for them. They already were in churches that took it seriously, so there wasn't that sort of black and white switch for them in that case. Um, it gets more down to doctrinal distinctions. Yeah, it, yeah. It was it was somebody more of like I was reading the Bible and really in, drilled in the Bible my entire life, which was not often the case in the other two. So you're exactly right. Unless it's less of a switch from no Bible or little Bible to Bible, and more of a switch from this view of the Bible to that view of the Bible, um, and that requires a fair bit more nuance. Also, fundamentalist cultures are thicker. Uh, than sort of mainline Protestantism or seeker evangelicalism. Uh, there's a lot more pressure within those circles. There's a lot more family ties. There's also a lot more shame involved in leaving them. A lot of people are leaving the other two groups, so it would be kind of ridiculous to have a lot of shame attached to that. Uh, they're, they're hemorrhaging numbers in a lot of ways, well, especially the compassion, you know, sort of the mainline Protestant side of things. But within fundamentalism, often you are going to risk um, serious loss of community and uh, perhaps even family, even in a switch from going from fundamentalist to being, say, conservative, reformed, evangelical. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of challenges there as well. Yeah. Also, just a much smaller group than the other two. Mm. Is there a place, though, for uh, kind of polemical, prophetic speaking uh, out against uh, other believers, people who at least claim to be following Christ, when they're out of step. Yeah, for sure. If I if I didn't think that, um, I'd be sure I have a step with the website that I run. <laughs> so uh, where we have we have plenty of polemics yeah. out there because uh, there's plenty of problems. I mean, we'll we'll do the piece on Joel Osteen or on Bethel Church or on all that sort of stuff. Um, ultimately, the difference is with with Christians, we're called to love our enemies, and I think one of the major problems we run into is that we think by Winning our enemies, we're trying to vanquish them. But with your enemies, you're trying to turn them into your friends. Um, now, you can't, you can't do that. That's really all just in your posture. So if you see your enemies as people who you need to love out of the command and the example of Christ, as he loved you uh, in, in when you were an enemy of God, then you can afford to even do polemics for the sake of, of loving them. Um, I'm just thinking of a friend recently who confronted a couple very close people um, because of lifestyle decisions they were making that were totally out of step. Well, the world would see that as being unloving there. 
But it's the ultimate loving thing if we believe the truth. Uh, unloving would be to simply ignore that kind of thing. So there's certainly a way to do polemics out of love, um, but it's a lot about your heart posture. I know that this friend did this because she loved these people. They weren't her enemies. They were her friends. But they reacted to it as if she was their enemy. Because the world doesn't understand how you can disagree with people and still love them. That's our opportunity as Christians, is to show that we can disagree, but still love. Because we are not just our beliefs. We are not just our feelings that we assert in a sort of expressive, individualistic kind of way. We are whole people, mind, body, soul, spirit, and thus can be loved even when we disagree. So it's, it's, treat, it's more like how you treat your family members who disagree with you on things, but nevertheless, you, you love them. That's the opportunity we have as Christians there. So there's definitely a place to do it and to do it in love. But I find a lot of the polemics I see today are intended not so much to win the other person, but to vanquish that other person, but only in the eyes of people who already agree that, with you. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You don't even care necessarily if the other person sees it or reads right. it. It's, it's, it's for your own crew. That's what I'm saying. Go back to what I said about politics there. It's not about winning the other person. It's about making your other people feel just, your, your supporters feel justified that they are so much superior to everyone else. It's just an endless game of gotcha there. Um, but that's the thing. We're trying to turn our enemies into our friends there. And again, you, you do that by treating them, treating your enemies as friends, at least people worthy of love and living peaceably with them so far as it is possible with you, recognizing that often the case, it's not possible. Yeah, yeah. You ask a really interesting question in the book, probably my favorite uh, little bit. You say, can you love a fellow Christian who sins <laughs> differently than you do? <laughs> what are you getting at with that? Well, again, it goes back to that kind of preaching and, and the blind spots dynamic there. So let's just take one example. You could have a church that is really solid on sexual issues, and it's a hard time for a church to, to take its ground on sexual issues. Okay, so let's even say they, they, they have a hard line on divorce. They, they say the Bible only says you can do it if the, if, the, uh, if the non-believer abandons the believer, 1 Corinthians 7, or if there's been sexual immorality on one, one party or more parties. Okay. All right, so let's take, let's take a hard stance on that, on homosexuality and transgenderism and everything like that. You might think, good, they're standing for truth. They're standing for courage in a difficult time. That's great. But don't we all know churches that are like that, that are also just festering grounds for gossip and for backbiting and for slander? I mean, that's one of the things. Uh, let's take it out of the realm of the church there for a second. Let's take it into the realm of um, sort of online discourse. One of the things I've found is that in online discourse, lying is extremely effective. It's extremely effective. So you have places, you have Christian websites that lie knowingly, explicitly, effectively in pursuit of truth. Huh. Well, that's really strange. That's really strange. But again, what's their problem? Well, they, they just... They all have the same sin of slander, divisiveness, backbiting, cruelty, but it's all okay because they share the same sin. 
What they don't share is they, they love to then point out other people who they see as compromising on these other values that they agree with. So again, they're, they're comfortable in their sin because they all share the same sin while they condemn people with different quote-unquote sins, which in this case is actually just manufactured. It's not even sins that they're talking about there. So that happens in churches. It happens in online discourse. People believe that let us lie and slander and backbite and so divisiveness so that God would be glorified. Boy, that's strange. That's impossible to justify biblically, but easy to justify if you start with this whole blind spots perspective, which is you're not so much looking to Jesus, you're looking to sort of tribal identity and asserting yourself against all these other people out mm. there. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. That, that It strikes me as um, the kind of thing you can only do when there is a blind spot, by definition. You're just completely out of touch with um, the reality of uh, your worldview and the limitations that it, that it has within it. Mm-hmm. Well, just, but just look at this. That's endemic in our culture. It's pervasive now of people who surround themselves only with voices that agree with them. Um, I mean, I, I was thinking about this with preaching. Imagine a pastor who's been preaching for a really long time and has a large and supportive audience. And every time he says something, everybody just gives him the benefit of the doubt on that. That's a good thing in many ways. We would admire that. But the flip side of that is that there's nobody to ever tell him that he's ever wrong about anything. So there's nobody to help him with any of his blind spots. Um, The church, instead of being a place where iron sharpens iron, it becomes very dull. Uh, and but somehow dangerous as a blunt object in that case. Here's sort of bringing this full circle. Let's talk about one of the positives of the internet age. One of the positives of the internet age is that when you, I mean, we're all basically speaking to the world now with the way podcasts work and social media work. There just aren't any more of these barriers now. So you say something. I mean, we we've had something in our church where our pastor said something, and then the next week it ended up in the Washington Post. And we were a pretty small church at the time, and the pastor would not have even foreseen that coming. But the point is, when he was speaking to one group of people, he didn't realize he was speaking to the entire world and for all time there. Well, that's scary, but let's see the positive there. It means that we have to get much better at anticipating objections, namely interrogating ourselves, looking for our own blind spots, because they will be pointed out <laughs> to yeah, you yeah. by people who don't always assume the best of you. So it really focuses and sharpens our communication and our inter- spiritual int- introspection to be able to know, am I actually speaking for truth and speaking for Christ here, or am I speaking within the sort of echo chamber that doesn't allow me to understand sort of what I'm actually saying? Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast and just giving us some good things to think about when it comes to Uh, understanding our own blind spots and then proactively seeking to uh, to fill them to to get vision into them uh, that would be more faithful to Christ well thank you that was Colin Hansen on seeing our blind spots as Christians for more be sure to check out his book with Crossway blind spots becoming a courageous compassionate and commissioned church available online or at your local Christian bookstore For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. 
Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.